Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. G'day, Alan. G'day, Darren. Today is Monday, the 29th of November. And apologies for a slight delay since we last spoke. We're going to begin with US-China, in particular the Biden-Xi virtual meeting. Next, we'll consider dueling speeches, you might say, from Australia's Defence Minister and Shadow Foreign Minister. Then we'll turn to the COP26 meeting in Glasgow, which concluded earlier this month, and finish with the new deployment of Australian police and troops to the Solomon Islands, given ongoing unrest there. But let's begin with US-China. On Monday, the 16th of November, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping held a virtual meeting. The talks went for some three and a half hours. This was the third conversation, I believe, between the two since Biden became president and was easily the longest. I mean, I haven't done a three and a half hour Zoom call yet, Alan, so hats off to them and their team for enduring for that amount of time. The list of topics for discussion was very long. I had a look at the White House's readout of the meeting and it mentioned in order PRC practices in Xinjiang, Tibet and Hong Kong, plus human rights more generally, a free and open Indo-Pacific, including freedom of navigation, Taiwan, the importance of managing strategic risks and the need for common sense guardrails for the relationship, shared transnational challenges like climate change and health security, and regional challenges including North Korea, Afghanistan, and Iran. It's worth mentioning, I think, before we get into a discussion, that the the context for this conversation had been a high level of tensions. And if we think in particular back to the meeting in Alaska that was between senior officials, it was a very tense affair. So I think the leaders here were, were were trying to take things in a bit of a different direction. So, Alan, what was your read on the summit? And did you sort of emerge afterwards more or less optimistic about the trajectory of US-China relations in the short term? This was a very post-COVID summit, wasn't it? Video communications have really been mainstreamed. And one Mm. of the great advantages of meetings like this is that you don't have to engage in the power struggles of who visits whom or whether you you meet in Alaska or or someone else or or what a third country compromise might be. Mm. So look, beginning with the good news, they held the meeting. They knew each other from the past and it was important that they re-established their connection. The political systems in the US and China are obviously very different, but you can't rise to the top in either of them without one of the primary political skills, which is the capacity to effectively read the psychology of your opponents and allies. So they had a chance to assess what was driving the other and to judge their real priorities and underlying concerns. And that's probably more important than the actual words they exchanged. Mm. You gave that list of the topics they talked about. The critical issue, I think, was probably Taiwan. And there, Biden repeated the complex formulation 
that the United States remains committed to the one China policy guided by the Taiwan Relations Act, the three joint communiques and the six assurances, which sounds much more like something coming from Beijing than Washington. (laughs) And he went on and added that the United States strongly opposes unilateral efforts to change the status quo or undermine peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. So all that's okay for Beijing. She responded, we are patient and we are willing to use our utmost sincerity and make the utmost effort to strive for the prospect of peaceful reunification. However, if Taiwan independent separatist forces provoke or coerce or even break through the red line, we will have to take drastic measures. Now, that in turn is okay, I think, for Washington. The assessments each side gave at the end of the meeting reflected, I thought, two governments with big differences that nevertheless understood the need to manage the relationship seriously. Both of them, that is both Biden and Xi, spoke about the importance of managing strategic risks. Biden, as you mentioned, talked about the need for common sense guardrails. She spoke in similar terms, though I must say more poetically. He said, we must stabilise the rudder so the giant ships will move forward against the wind and waves without yawing, stalling or colliding. And I have to say, Darren, that I think that is the first time I have ever spoken the word yawing. I have, <laughs> I, I, I've read it, but there you are. Anyway, the basic message the same. So my bottom line is I'm more optimistic because it happened rather than because of anything they negotiated. There's obviously a long way to go. They talked, as you said, for more than three hours. So there were certainly issues canvassed, which you and I are unaware of. What about you? Look, I think I could answer this question using some IR theory, Alan. What do do you think? Oh, take it away, maestro. (laughs) (laughs) Look, a vast amount of, of IR scholarship concerns the question of cooperation, most often between nation states. And this is where cooperation is where two or, or more players make choices about their behavior. But the complexity is that the choices each makes affect the welfare of the other side. The classic example, which I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of, is the prisoner's dilemma. You have two prisoners who are locked in separate cells and asked to confess a crime. If neither confess, they get off lightly. If they both confess, they get a moderate punishment. But if one confesses and the other does not, The confessing prisoner is released, the best possible outcome for either, while the silent prisoner gets the harshest possible sentence, the worst possible outcome. And this is a dilemma because both prisoners would together on net be better off if they cooperated by staying silent. But both face incentives to defect, as they say, by confessing. And in fact, in this case, each is better off defecting no matter what the other side does. So you're better off not cooperating and and confessing irrespective of what the other side does, their behavior. And that's called a dominant strategy. So what happens is they both defect and overall both end up being worse off collectively. And that's kind of the tragedy of the prisoner's dilemma. And so a lot of international relations research asks how one can influence the structure of the situation and create different incentives and mechanisms to try to make mutual cooperation, which is better for everybody, more likely. And even war is framed in this in this term as, as a failure to cooperate. 
So the sort of the basic idea is that cooperation is is costly. You know, either you've got to give up something to the other side that you don't want to give up, or you have to expose yourself to some risk or some vulnerability. But if you do that and it is reciprocated in return, then everybody obviously emerges better off. Now, there are other types of games than the prisoner's dilemma. You've got the chicken game, you've got the battle of the sexes, the stag hunt. You make IR sound so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Like the set of video games. (laughs) Indeed, Alan. But there is one type of game that doesn't get studied very much and has a less sexy name. It's called Deadlock. And it differs from the prisoner's dilemma in that both players are actually materially better off if they both don't cooperate, if they both defect compared to the scenario where they both cooperate. So there is actually no optimal cooperative solution that exists. Neither side, if you will, will benefit from playing nicely. So my take on the meeting was, like you, to be relieved that it happened uh, and that both sides did want to lower the temperature. They both recognised that on arguably this biggest question of armed conflict, there remain clear benefits to cooperating and that they are still very much in a prisoner's dilemma. But on most other issues, whether it's technology or human rights or each's vision for the region, the costs of making concessions to the other side outweigh the benefits from the concessions that might be received in return. And so I see a lot of deadlock. Why is that? Well, I think it takes us back to what we talked about in our last episode, domestic politics and the two-level game. What is possible for both sides is defined by what leaders think domestic audiences will accept. And right now, that's just not very much. Thus, I came away a little bit optimistic for the reasons you laid out, but also pessimistic. Optimistic, I guess, because it does seem like neither side wants to fight, but pessimistic because avoiding war is far from the only challenge we face collectively right now, even if it is perhaps the most important. Yeah, look, I just want to take you up on that, Darren. My problem with the two-level game way of thinking about foreign policy, and, you know, you talked about this in a number of podcasts now, is that it assumes that the actions of the leaders are not in themselves a way of shifting what domestic audiences will accept, as you as you put it. So, you know, the neatest definition of leadership I know is that it's the job of interpreting the future to the present. So wouldn't you hope that political leaders wouldn't feel constrained so much by what the public felt, but would want to change the public's conclusions? And if you think back through Australian foreign policy, you can see plenty of examples from the Commerce Treaty with Japan so soon after the Second World War, through the abolition of the White Australia policy even to the Howard government's decision to send troops to Iraq, where the government acted contrary to the public mood and the public mood eventually changed. Look, that's a very fair point, Alan. And there is, you will not be surprised to hear, research which looks into how leaders on both sides can expand what is possible for their side, or even to try to expand what is possible for the other side, which Putnam uses the term reverberation to describe, although others might use the Mm. phrase internal interference. Look, I think the the cheap and easy response to your point is that if you fail to change minds when you try, then you lose the next election or you're ousted in a revolution or a coup. So leaders not only need the courage to lead, 
um, but the political smarts to know how to build those coalitions of support for seemingly unpopular views. And, and I do think it is harder now, certainly in democracies, given the technologies of communication, I think a lot of equalization of power across society. It's not you don't have a, a blob that's as much in charge anymore that can do things insulated from from the public. It is harder now, I think, to push forward and push against, you know, what might be misinformed but is very deeply held popular opinion. I just want to make one point. For all my talk of of how Biden is constrained by domestic politics, I think that applies tenfold to the Chinese Communist Party. They are the most sensitive government on the planet. You know, the, the Peng Shui example is very illustrative here. She's a woman in an era of Me Too who made a public complaint that she was sexually assaulted. There's nothing inherently political about that. Well, there doesn't need to be. But in China, everything is political and incipient social movements are perceived as sources of political instability and they're perceived as as threats to the legitimacy and the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. So while Biden might be afraid that a certain policy course might see a return to Trump, the fear of the CCP of its own people is much greater, which is causing the party to assume ever tighter control not just over political life, but over economic life, over social life, over cultural life. And so to, you know, to get back to your earlier query about you know, the merits of the two-level game as a, a way of framing you know, this analysis, you know, I don't think there's any government in the world that is as constrained by domestic politics than Beijing. Well, we certainly agreed there, and I wish that point was better understood in Canberra. Okay, well, let's, let's move on to our second item. And we have a pair of speeches from Australian leaders to consider, one from Australia's Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, and one from the Shadow Foreign Minister, Penny Wong. Now, this story actually kicks off with a comment made by Dutton in an interview with the Australian newspaper that was published on the 13th of November, marking his 20 years in Parliament. The context was yet another controversial speech by Paul Keating. We've discussed him in the past. A few weeks prior, in which Keating, amongst many other claims, said that Taiwan was not a vital Australian interest. Now, Dutton described Keating as a grand appeaser and then said the following on Taiwan. It would be inconceivable that we wouldn't support the US in an action if the US chose to take that action. And again, I think we should be very frank and honest about that. Look at all the facts and circumstances without pre-committing And maybe there are circumstances where we wouldn't take that option, but I can't conceive of those circumstances, end quote. Wong then gave her speech 10 days later at the ANU on the 23rd. The title was Expanding Australia's Power and Influence, and we'll talk about some of the broader substance in a bit. But she made headlines by describing Dutton as being, quote, wildly out of step with the strategy long adopted by Australia and our principal ally and accusing him of doing so for domestic political purposes, saying, quote, amping up the prospect of war against a superpower is the most dangerous election tactic in Australian history. Just a handful of days after that, Dutton gave a full speech at the press club, the National Press Club, where he doubled down drawing analogies between the present and the 1930s multiple times and saying explicitly, quote, 
if Taiwan is taken, surely the Senkakus are next, end quote. And that while China did not want to occupy countries, quote, they do see us as tributary states. Now, after name-checking Penny Wong, Dutton would then say, quote, acquiescence or appeasement is a tactic that ends in a cul-de-sac of strategic misfortune. So, Alan, my first question is on the Dutton quote and then the speech. And what I'm wondering is why he said what he said. What was the logic here and what does he hope to achieve? We know what Penny Wong's take was, which is that this was just about domestic politics with an upcoming election. And that would, I guess, presage what the so-called notion of a khaki election, where national security is front and centre of campaigning. But I want to also consider Dutton's own justification given in the press club speech. Quote, I believe we should call out actions that are destabilising and contrary to the interests of Australia and the region. We do this because the Australian people expect it of their government. But we also do it because we must amplify voices silenced by coercion, yet which seek the same peace and stability as us. And because in speaking out, we provide space for others to also voice their concern. And then Dutton, in particular, said the debate on Taiwan needed to be more honest. So, Alan, what do you make of that argument and to what extent would it apply here? I don't really know what he means, Darren. Does he mean that it is the responsibility of the government honestly to criticise the actions of other states with which we disagree in the same way that a journalist or, say, a podcaster might? Does he mean that that honest debate means that the government should always say what it really thinks about a given international issue? It's nonsense, of course, even in a domestic context. Peter Dutton knows full well that it's not the job of the government to provide unalloyed commentary on every issue we might agree or disagree with. Political judgments almost always require a hard balancing of different and sometimes contending interests. So the government's job is not to be a commentator, but to advance Australia's interests and protect its values. So, yeah, I I don't understand the point. Yeah, the argument that he's saying these things because the Australian people expect it was especially unconvincing, since, as you say, he's not demonstrating a link between public expectations and Australia's national interests. And that's assuming that Australian expectations are what he says they are. His other argument that Australia must amplify voices silenced by coercion, to me, in theory, might work if there was a genuine case where there'd been a silencing and the world needed to be made aware. But Taiwan is not that case, right? There is a lot of talk about Taiwan globally, and indeed that's part of the problem since there are many around the world who claim to be speaking on behalf of the Taiwanese but are actually just drowning out Taiwanese voices and too often not taking into account what the Taiwanese people themselves actually want. So, yes, Alan, like you, I was not persuaded by the case he made that saying these things was in Australia's national interest. So let's bring in the Wong speech now, since, like us, she was critical of Dutton's inconceivable comment, though, of course, Dutton hadn't made his press club speech yet. In addition to what I introduced a few moments ago, Wong argued that being so explicit on what Australia would do was inconsistent with long-standing US policy. 
And she echoed an argument made by friend of the podcast, Natasha Kassam of the Lowy Institute, that it played into Beijing's hands by perpetuating a false dichotomy for the choice facing Taiwan as either unification or war. Alan, I'll assume that you will broadly approve of her call for a renewed focus on foreign policy, a recognition of the limits of military power, and the statement that foreign policy is a tool for delivering national security, but one that is disturbingly underutilised. Did you agree? It was clearly a speech for the political times. You could read the pre-election tone in the sharper, more attacking language on the PM and Dutton. There were also clear preemptive elements in it. But there wasn't really any shift in the Labor position on China, rough summary of which is you know, basically more of the same, but with more effective implementation. And it's going to be hard to build a great, you know, divide out of Mm. that in the months ahead. Most interesting, I thought, as you predicted I would, was the language on foreign policy and DFAT. She talked about three drivers that would be central to Labor's foreign policy, and they were projecting modern Australia to the region and the world, fostering genuine partnerships grounded in trust and enhancing our capability in navigating international relations. A talented, skilled Australian Foreign Service, she said, had been hampered by, quote, a lack of leadership, degraded resources and a lack of clarity on how they are expected to deliver for Australia in these changing times. DFAT needed clearer political leadership and a sharper understanding of its role, responsibility and its potential, as well as the tools to deliver this, including a rebuilding of the development assistance program. Now, there's actually quite a radical agenda potentially wrapped up in all of that language if that's what she wants. Mm. I mean, I thought it was a strong speech, but I could see and, and almost feel what you might call the minefield of national security politics that she had to navigate in giving the speech. And I thought our our friend and and colleague, Rory Medcalf, gave her a very tricky first question, which asked her sort of to go into more detail about Labor's Taiwan policy. But she handled it all very well. But it just, it, it feels precarious when you want to sort of come at a government for being too hawkish because you always expose yourself to the risk of of, of, of a counter, which is that you're soft on, on national security. So maybe, you know, the delicate balancing actually engaged in was the best case scenario for a critique. But I want to come back then to, to Dutton's rejoinder, because I, I'm sure that his invocation of the 1930s and, and, and use of the loaded term appeasement, you know, is in part a reference to this critique, right? It's a pushback. If you come at us, you're appeasing China, right? That's the subtext for for what he's saying. And so, look, I I think back to watching early 1990s Simpsons and the aphorism from one episode that if you want peace, you must prepare for war. How should a country like Australia think about its contributions to deterrence in a case like Taiwan? Uh, Well, I'm actually with the Simpsons on that that one. I think one of the reporters said exactly the same thing in his account of Dutton's speech. How should Australia think about deterrence in relation to Taiwan? The network of US alliances in the region is central to Washington's capacity to manage the relationship with China and to encourage the resolution of cross-straits relations 
without unilateral actions to change the status quo, as Biden put it. So in my view, that's the significant contribution we make to deterrence, plus the you know ongoing diplomatic work of seeking to shape views in Beijing and the region and to build common positions with other partners on this issue. So do you reckon the Minister's Press Club speech added a lentil's weight of additional deterrence to counter any action Beijing might take? It will have irritated Beijing, but that's not deterrence. Yeah, look, that's precisely it, Alan. We should acknowledge, I suppose, that Dutton wasn't claiming his criticism of Taiwan was intended as deterrence, though former Liberal Party staffer Peter Credlin made basically that exact argument in the Australian newspaper a few days later. But I agree with you, Alan. Like, I see zero reason, either theoretically or empirically, to think that a statement like Dutton's would contribute to the Australian deterrent against the use of force in the region over Taiwan or anything else. But we, even if there's no benefits, that we also need to consider the costs. And as you say, Alan, it irritated Beijing. While some may not think that this is a significant cost, the government itself, through its own actions, constantly exercises restraint when it talks about China, suggesting that it believes, at least sometimes, that upsetting Beijing for no reason is not in Australia's national interest. So someone needs to explain to me what the justification was here in more depth. Sorry, Darren, do I hear you right? Are you saying that the Morrison government has been constantly exercising restraint in its language on China? What about the COVID inquiry or the Senkakus, for that matter? In his speech, and we haven't mentioned this, that the minister said that once the Chinese had taken Taiwan, the Senkakus would be next on the list. Now, it was interesting that he used the Japanese name for the islands because the usual formulation of Australian policymakers has been the Senkaku-Dao islands because they're claimed by China as well. This seems to be a real shift from the earlier position, even of the, this current government. Julie Bishop and Josh Frydenberg were both saying publicly in 2013, last time the Senkaku's issue arose, that Australia did not have a position on the competing maritime claims between the two sides. So simply using the term Senkaku's is waving a red flag. I think I make it too easy for you, Alan. You're ever the stickler for precision. So let me let me rephrase I would certainly not describe the coalition government's overall public messaging on China as restrained. But I do think it's true, almost axiomatically true, that on a day-to-day basis, leaders do exercise a degree of restraint. Prime Minister Morrison, Foreign Minister Payne, Trade Minister Tian, and before him, Simon Birmingham, all exercise restraint and, and probably do exercise more restraint than Dutton. Because the Chinese do lob a lot of provocations our way, Australia's way, and they don't take the bait nearly as much as they could if they wanted to. And I'm sure that Dutton deep down would like to, given the nature of the provocations. And if you compare you know, the Australian leadership team with the Chinese foreign ministry and state media, which appears to respond to every single slight, real or perceived, delivered anywhere against China, anywhere around the world, I think there is a contrast. And so my point is not to praise them for being restrained. It's to recognise that there's got to be some logic there. They choose to respond sometimes and not other times. And I would like to know what that logic precisely is. You know, how are they calculating when it's in Australia's national interest to speak up and to be critical or to respond and when it's not? When do they let loose and when do they stay silent? Like, 
there's got to be some calculation there. I just don't quite see what it is. But let me make one final point on Wong's speech. You know, this comes back to the idea of, of how do you effectively criticise a government for being you know, too hawkish? It was striking to me that several times in the speech, she quoted the CDF, the Chief of Defence Force, the most senior official in the Australian military, Angus Campbell. She quoted him twice in support of her argument, as if she was saying you know, to the world, look, it's not just me who's saying this, it's Australia's most senior military figure. And so I think there seems to me to be a, a political necessity that even when you want to critique national security for being too hawkish, for being too firm, you still have to wrap yourself up in the language of, of military figures, right? You have to sort of live in that world, that securitized world. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise you're going to get smacked back as being weak, as being appeasing, as being soft on national security. And this makes me think, you know, this is sort of why I think of the minefield of, of national security politics, that it's quite easy to come at someone from the other side if you want to come from the more hawkish side and saying you, the government is weak. But if you come from the other side by saying they're too hawkish, you really do have to be very careful in how you phrase things and sometimes maybe be very complex and obtuse in how you do so rather than being blunt and perhaps communicate very clearly. And this this makes me think of an article, one of the most useful articles I read actually during my master's degree, which is called Why Hawks Win. And it was published in Foreign Policy in 2007. And one of the co-authors is actually a Nobel laureate in economics who is a psychologist uh, by the name of Daniel Kahneman. And he's actually best known for prospect theory, for those who are familiar with his name. Yeah, a couple of really good books. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. And I'll try and link to it in the show notes because I think everyone should read this. It's only about four pages long. And the basic argument is that we know from the entire field of psychology that there are lots of biases that influence our decision-making, right? And there's a whole – if you look on Wikipedia, you can see a list of 30 or 40 of them of of these cognitive biases that affect how we make decisions and how we analyse the world. And the argument in this piece is that the nature of these biases in the foreign policy realm bias policy towards hawkish positions, right? So it's not that we're inherently hawkish because we believe in in, in the hawkish vision. It's that we make these cognitive biases that push us towards the hawkish perspective, which is very interesting and in many ways quite concerning because obviously we don't always want to be hawkish in how we conduct foreign policy. But I think it, it to me it partly explains why opposition parties have to be so careful when they are critiquing policies for being too hawkish. So I'll, I'll try and link to it in the show notes and uh, encourage everyone to check it out. But let's move on to our third item, which is which is Glasgow. And I assume all of our readers know the basic outlines of what happened, so I'll make my introduction brief. COP26 followed COP25, which was in Paris in 2015. It had been delayed by a year due to the pandemic. The governments of the world made pledges at Paris to lower emissions, and in Glasgow they increased those pledges by a bit more. These are far from radical pledges in terms of timing, at least. The US and EU are aiming for net zero in 2050, China in 2060, and India in 2070. But it's probably fair to say that few, if any, countries have policies in place right now that will put them on track to meet those objectives. We're all relying on technology and our kids and grandkids to fix this problem for us. So the pledges from Paris, if fulfilled, would result in predictions of around 2.7 degrees warming by 
2100 and those from Glasgow lower that prediction to 2.4 degrees. So even if everyone does everything they're promising right now, we're nowhere near the 1.5 degrees that scientists say we should be aiming for. So Alan, with that in mind, do you view the meeting as success? Why or why not? Mixed, I think. Glasgow failed to deliver what we need in the face of the imminent crisis. But if if you're of an optimistic temperament, there are some small straws you can clutch. So I, I think the British president of the conference, Alok Sharma, got it right when he said it was a, a fragile win. I'm going to draw here on some useful analysis from Mark Thurwell, my former Lowy Institute colleague, who's now the chief economist of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and we can post this on the show notes. But Mark pointed out that there were three key issues at stake in Glasgow. First, could we maintain the Paris commitment to net zero carbon emissions by 2050? And to do that, we needed to see significant upgrades to the national commitments countries were making to cut emissions by 2030. Second, could we secure a renewed and credible agreement from the rich countries to meet their previous commitments to provide at least $100 billion a year in financing for developing countries until 2025? And third, could we agree on rules which were left over from Paris, basically, for international trade in emissions between countries and a global market for official carbon credits. Now, in addition, the UK wanted progress on a number of other issues, including the phasing out of coal, curbing methane emissions and halting deforestation. So the conference largely failed to deliver on one and two keeping the world on track to meet the temperature goals and the provisions of financing for developing countries. Though there was some movement on temperature goals, and you'd ha- you'd have to say that the trend was heading in the right direction. There, there seemed to be a, a sort of a growing urgency. The conference did succeed in delivering on the mechanism for emissions trading and the creation of a new supervisory body for a global carbon marketplace. And this may have big consequences, especially for Australia. And this was probably the part of the conference that Australia played the biggest role in negotiations. Although the final document contained a last minute shift from a call for the phasing out of coal to its phasing down, even the naming of a particular fossil fuel was a sign of some progress. Along with more than 190 countries, Australia endorsed the Climate Pact, but it announced promptly that it would ignore the provisions in the pact that it had just signed, calling on countries to strengthen their 2030 emissions targets by next year. So, look, you have to wonder whether when Australia talks about the importance of adhering to the rules-based order, we are not in danger of being called out for picking and choosing ourselves. This whole area of climate change and energy policy really has been one of the spectacular failures of Australian public policy. And there are going to be real consequences for the speed with which we will be able to manage and prosper from the inevitable and morally necessary outcome of decarbonising the economy. So we just have to hope that once the election is out of the way, whichever party is in government, will be able to refocus and 
recalibrate. And with our US allies using terms like existential risk, the pressures on Australia are just going to continue to build. Yeah, I agree with you, Alan. My first point would be that pledges don't play a very large role in in, in my own theoretical model for how the world achieves success in this area. Of course, you need them. You need meetings like this because they do shape trends for how policy frameworks evolve and they help set normative terms of the debate. As you say, coal was mentioned for the very first time in the final agreement. While the language wasn't exactly what people wanted, the fact that it was in there does, as you say, cement in people's minds, I think, the inevitability that coal is on its way out. But my second point, for me, the memorable moment of the conference was provided by the Brit, Alok Sharma, as you said, who was sort of the COP26 president. He gave a concluding speech that went viral because he apologised to other delegates for the process and he fought back visible tears in saying that he understood how disappointed everybody was. And I've been lucky enough to meet and indeed share a few drinks with a number of UN officials and other multilateral negotiators in my life. And if there's one consistent message I've gleaned from them, it's that multilateral negotiations are utterly exhausting. You know, you walk in with these high ambitions on issues that are really important. Often it's literally a matter of life or death, perhaps in the context of a short-term issue like a peacekeeping mission or a long-term issue like climate change. And then you come out the other side and you've not achieved the full scope of your ambition. Sometimes you've only gotten a fraction of that, you know, and, and I can so therefore just imagine, you know, how sort of excruciating the negotiations would be And then when you come out and you haven't achieved those goals, how disappointed you must feel, how crushed you must feel. And that's what I saw in in Sharma's tears. But the the thing is you can't give up, right? Because if you become jaded by the process and then the next time you scale back your ambition, then you become that cliched, cynical internationalist bureaucrat who Mm. goes through the motions in these meetings and achieves basically nothing. So you've got to find some way of keeping the passion in the fire and be willing to go back in. And there's going to be another meeting next year, apparently, and expose yourself to another round of excruciating negotiations and expose yourself to the possibility, indeed the likelihood that you're going to be disappointed all over again and again and again. And when I sort of realized this process, you know, more than a decade ago now, I realized that I could not do this kind of job, right? I had to go and I had to apply and do a PhD instead, but that I have so much respect for the negotiators who do this work. It's so difficult. You know, I can sit here and and stroke my chin and talk about international relations theory and say, look, the politics of climate change is fraught. Moving China and India on these issues, even, hey, moving Australia on these issues is very hard given domestic opposition. And that might be true from the point of view of, of IR theory, but you know, it's just not very helpful, right? And so, like, I go back to my first point that that the pledges are meaningful. I think that, and and you agreed with this, but I think that really what what matters is that the ultimate outcomes are not going to be determined by these big events alone, but the decisions that are made every single day by governments, by societies, by companies and markets, and by people. So, I just want to say to those of you listening who work on this issue. Thank you. I am sorry that it's painful, that it's excruciating, and I'm grateful that you are willing to go through it all over again and again and again in the years ahead. And so say both of us, Darren. (laughs) All right. Well, for our final item today, let's talk about the Solomon Islands because Australia has deployed 
police and troops after peaceful protests turned violent last week, with buildings burned and looted, the Chinese community in particular being targeted, and local security forces being overwhelmed. The political context of this tumult is long-running and deep-seated unhappiness among parts of the population with Prime Minister Sogavare, tensions that were exacerbated by his government's decision last year to switch its formal diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. There is a lot of political complexity to this issue, so I'll post some really good initial analysis that set it out for those who are interested. Now, importantly from Australia's point of view, this unrest caused the Solomon Islands government to ask Australia for help, which was given in the form of, I think, 23 AFP with some ADF to follow a few days later. Prime Minister Morrison said that the purposes of this deployment were to provide security and stability and allow normal constitutional processes to play themselves out. Of course, Australia, the context here is Australia led a very lengthy peacekeeping mission, Ramsey, that only officially ended in 2017. So Alan, that's where I want to begin our analysis. Can you describe the historical context here? What lessons did we learn from Ramsey or equivalent missions that might shape how the government is thinking about this or ought to be thinking about this mission of stabilising the Solomon Islands this time around? Just as a side, Darren, to be pedantic but also accurate, the country's name is simply Solomon Islands without uh, the I've noticed Australian ministers and journalists keep adding the definite article. Well, that's interesting because I, I didn't know that. I haven't looked into it. But the one example I have looked into is the Philippines, which is short for Republic of the Philippines. And this is on Wikipedia for anyone who wants to check it out. But the definite article, the the, was added by the Americans when they translated from the original Spanish name, which was, of course, named after Philip II. So a nice contrast there. Yeah. Now, look, you, you've described the lead-up to the request. Just, just to remind listeners, the Solomon Islands is part of the same archipelago as Bougainville in Papua New Guinea, and, the, you know, the fact that it's a different country is just another random consequence of European colonialism. What we're seeing here is a continuation of rivalry and conflicts over land and money between the two large islands of Guadalcanal, where the capital Honiara is located, and the most populous island, Malaita, together with other more contemporary concerns like the delivery of services and resentment of corruption added in. The trouble dates back to the turn of the century. In 2000, police and Malaitan settlers living on Guadalcanal seized the police armoury and forced the then Prime Minister for office and violence spread and the economy collapsed. And Australia at that time made unsuccessful diplomatic attempts to broker a ceasefire and thought about sending in troops. But the Foreign Minister Alexander Downer rejected the idea, writing in a newspaper column in January 2003 that, quote, it would be widely resented in the Pacific region it would be difficult to justify to the Australian taxpayers. And for how many years would such an occupation have to continue? And what would be the exit strategy? The real showstopper, however, is that it would not work. Foreigners do not have answers to the deep-seated problems afflicting Solomon Islands, end quote. Now, I noticed, by the way, that in another newspaper column today, 
Alexander Downer is claiming that he didn't really believe that at the time. The caution was all the, all the fault of the advice he was getting from DFAT. Look, I can only say that that's not how I remember Alexander's relationship with the debate. <laughs> Whatever. Now, finally, however, in 2003, as law and order continued to deteriorate, John Howard announced in the middle of the year that subject to, and it was really well done, I thought, subject to formal requests from the Solomon Islands, changes in legislation to give legal cover to Australian peacekeepers, the endorsement of other regional members of the Pacific Islands Forum, Australia would send police and military help, and this turned into the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands, Ramsey, as you say. At its height, the mission comprised 2,200 personnel, including 1,400 ADF troops and 134 AFP officers, plus representatives from other Pacific Islands. The initial job of the mission, which was basically seizing weapons and encouraging the surrender of key militants, was very successful under the leadership of Nick Warner, but it proved much more difficult to fulfil the longer-term mandate of improving economic governance and the machinery of government. So when the mission was eventually withdrawn in 2017, Jenny Haywood-Jones of the Lowy Institute estimated it's cost more than $2.6 billion. But as Alexander Downer had predicted, and as we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, the capacity of an outside government like Australia to remake social and economic structures in another state is very limited. Now, obviously, we don't know what will happen this time, though I've got no doubt that the government is well aware of the Ramsey precedent and will be keen to draw barriers around what is happening. But as an immediate stabilising instrument, this is a good and necessary decision and the continued engagement of PNG and other Pacific forces alongside Australians is also, I think, being very well handled. And what about the China-Taiwan angle? Do you think that's meaningful here? It's hard to find an international story into which the China dimension is not squeezed these days. There are enough internal Solomon's dimensions to explain the conflict, but even so, elements of Chinese and Taiwanese rivalry, including Taiwan's continued support for Mylata, despite the change in recognition policy in Honiara, continue to reinforce disagreements. Taipei and Beijing, Washington too, surprisingly, have used aid to shape the views of locals on the ground. And look, in societies as fragile and poor as Solomon Islands, that can have a disproportionate effect. Yeah. All I would add to that is China is a major global player now with global interests. And I think there's going to be a China angle on most stories, the way there is a US angle. I would recommend a really terrific piece by Ed Kavanagh published in the Sydney Morning Herald a few days ago that I will post in the show notes. So I think we've been talking for a while, Alan, so let's wrap things up with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? Right away from everything we've been talking about, The Velvet Underground, a documentary directed by Todd Haynes on Netflix. It's a film whose innovative style matches the radicalism of the group that it celebrates. Now, there are not many relics of my early 20s which still sound cool these days, but <laughs> Lou Reed, John Cale, Nico and Andy Warhol manage it. Honestly, what more could you ask for? A terrific film. 
Well, the only thing that might top that, which I haven't watched yet, is Get Back, the the new Beatles documentary, which we'll have to talk about on a future day when we've both seen it. Look, my recommendation is a new podcast by one of my favourite journalists whose name is Derek Thompson. He writes for The Atlantic. And basically for the last few years, I've read everything he's written and always find it valuable. He's got a new podcast called Plain English. And he's look, there are a couple of people like this, especially operating in the US, Tyler Cowen, Ezra Klein, and, and Zainab Tufekia are three, where I just read everything they write. And anytime they do a podcast, I try and listen to it. So Derek Thompson, I would add to that. You know, I think it's only three or four episodes old, but he writes about technology and politics, broadly speaking, and, and some economics as well. There's a lot of breadth to it. So just a nice... Easy, you know, plain English, the, the idea here is to explain complex things simply. I think it's extremely worthwhile. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing today. And, of course, thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We will talk to you again soon. <laughs>